0: going to be uh, continuing this morning with our series in marriage. And to the parents in the audience, the congregation, I want to tell you that this sermon has been edited for content. Okay? So don't panic. Um, It'll be okay. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word does it skirt around issues and presents to us, Father, one of the clearest response to some of the deepest questions we have. And if there's something, Father, that at this time in our history, in planet Earth's history, we need to hear from your word what you have to say about sex. So Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to give clarity and focus. Thank you, Lord, for your Spirit's promise to guide us into truth. And I claim that, Lord, because we need it. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The sermon is edited for content, but if you go to that website, uh, you will find that I've uploaded this morning. A presentation that I did on 3ABN some years ago with a friend of mine, two friends of mine, um, Pastor Daniel McGrath. He's a pastor here in the Michigan Conference. And another friend of mine named um, Jay Rosario, he invited me to a program that used to be called Engage. It started out with another pastor named David Asherick, and then transitioned to Jay, and he invited me to do a presentation on sexuality, which is a journey that is now going on over 15 years that I have been Presenting this, and the material that I'm presenting to you this morning is not that per se, because we are focusing on marriage. But uh, of course, if we're going to talk about marriage, we can't skip um, sex. And so we're going to begin, you um, know, I think where the Bible begins um, confronting us. We, we are where we are in our rela- how we relate to, to sex, and my little preamble of the sermon is edited for content. Actually, I know that I have to say this because as Christians, um, to varying levels of degrees, depending on culture and background, we are uncomfortable talking about sex. My parents were. Um, growing up in my, in my church in Pennsylvania, in South America, both in Argentina and Bolivia, asked me how many sermons I heard on this subject. How many Sabbath school quarter, quarterlies we talked about this, right? Right? zero. And there's a reason for that. And it's because, well, we're going to look at it this morning. Um, To begin with, in the Old Testament, you have no apprehensions, no inhibitions, definitely not from God, when addressing the subject of sexuality. As we will see in in just a few moments, the very first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God talks about sex. So God doesn't beat around the bush. He's not ashamed or embarrassed of it, But there's a reason why we as Christians are, and it has to do with bad theology. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew people had no problem um, addressing this. One of the evidences is that if you open your Bibles, um, you have the book of Psalms, one of the biggest books, it is the biggest book in the Bible, followed by a book of wisdom called Proverbs. And within the vicinity of the wisdom books, you have this book called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. How many of you guys are familiar with that, that book? How many of you guys have read it? Okay, so you know what it's talking about, right? Hopefully you know what it's talking about. It's not talking about goats and sheep and all those things. It's talking about a love letter between a man and a woman. The Hebrew people had no problem realizing that that book had been inspired by the Holy Spirit. They consider it to be one of the most sacred books in their canon but when Christianity was developing and trying to identify itself as Christians as no longer being tied to the Judaic worldview or traditions, the Christians during the 2nd and 3rd century almost left that book out. There was heated debate whether that nasty book should be in the Bible. That was their attitude. And why was such a, a, a prohibited book because it spoke about sex. Why is it that second, third, fourth century Christianity had those attitudes versus the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people that never really exhibited such inhibitions and apprehensions? And like I said before, it is bad theology. The Greeks, when Alexander the Great conquered and expanded, he did not just expand territory wise. What got expanded were also Plato and Aristotle's um, way of describing life and reality. And people loved Greek philosophy. They were highly sophisticated ways of relating to the world and answering life's questions. And Rome fell in love with Greek philosophy as well, Greek theology. And Christianity eventually became known as not just the Catholic Church, but the Roman Catholic Church church. That's the official name. And that Roman part brought with it all of the Greek, all of the Greek theology, bad theology with it. And there's one specific element in Greek theology that pushed, uh, and Satan, of course, is behind all of this, but Satan has always pushed to extremes the good things that God has given us. You see, then in the Gospels, you have the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the extremes, polarizing. Satan is trying to polarize our nation. Satan is trying to polarize our church. And he does so by pushing us to extremes. And during the second, third, fourth century and onward, Christianity was being polarized to, uh, through the negative view of sexuality. Eventually, that was the reason why we developed, they developed um, celibate vows, vows of celibacies in which they willingly denied themselves sex, and they became monks and nuns. Are you familiar with them? That's one of the core vows that they make. They will have no experience, no sexual interaction, and the Catholic priest, the priesthood, eventually was mandated to be celibate, something that is not found anywhere in the Scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there's been an unbroken chain of pope successions from Peter, who was supposed to be the first pope, And yet, one of the first miracles that Jesus does after he calls his disciples is he heals a family member of Peter. Does does anyone know what family member of Peter Jesus heals? From a fever? His mother-in-law. Now, you can't have a mother-in-law unless you first have a wife. So Peter was not single, nor was he celibate. And these are open glaring you don't need to know greek or aramaic to, to see these things in the scriptures so there's some clear contradictions second third fourth century christianity and onwards that the protestant reformation has been trying to shed and correct and we as adventists we're in that journey as well so you have these and it didn't happen just in the second and third uh, centuries those things were already present in many of the pagan religions of the world and so Satan would polarize in making something that God gave us that is good as evil. God gave us something that is good called sexuality and sex, and Satan pushed it to where we saw that it was evil. And he did that in the pagan world, and it transferred over into the Christian church. The, the, the other extreme, of course, was that sex was deified. Sex is evil, was way over there. Now sex becomes God. God gave us something good and Satan pushes it so that through bad theology we think of it as evil or through bad theology it causes us to think that sex is God. And our nation is one of the prime examples of people worshiping sex. Individuals treating the act of sex as if it was oxygen. As if without that, there just cannot be a relationship. There can not just be joy and experience and, and gratification. The only highest experience that you, you and I could have, so it is thought in culture, is this. We, we have a little bit of theology to do to correct ourselves, to correct how we view these things. I have a, a quote on the screen that I've gotten from one of the books that I shared with you where I've been drawing a lot of this material. And Greek theology had a, a, a component of it called dualism. It was actually a foundational component. And dualism simply means two. There was two. And in the Greek mind, when Plato and later on Aristotle would look at humans, they were convinced that humans were made up of two parts, the physical body and the spirit which was within, or the soul. And every human was composed of this shell of the material with the inward part being the true self, your spirit. And so it, with, with that premise, their understanding of um, reaching higher grounds, our bodies prevented us from entering into the spiritual realm. So when you died, it was actually a moment of relief, Uh, Thus, salvation was perceived as the liberation of the soul, this quote is in the screen, from the prison house of the body. This dualistic teaching greatly influenced Christian thought through the centuries, to the point that gradually many Christians abandoned the Christian view of the resurrection of the body, replacing it with the Greek concept of the immortality of the soul. Talking about sex... We typically go to the branches and the leaves. The word of God goes to the very root of the problem. The reason in the media and the entertainment industry and all these different agencies in our country that are seeking to polarize us as Christians even when it comes to this matter of sex is because we are debating and arguing about branches and leaves and never bothering to look at the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that we have bad theology that needs to get corrected by the Word of God. The Bible does not present human beings as made up of two separate entities, but one complete whole. Adam is described as becoming a soul, not having a soul put inside of him. So, the Bible, if as Protestants, as Christians, we're going to take. Ownership of understanding or sexuality, and if you think, "Well, I'm single. I'm not planning to do anything." Well, praise the Lord for that. But eventually, you will become married, and eventually, you will have children. And as we talked about last Sabbath, you can't protect. You cannot listen carefully. You cannot protect innocence with ignorance. So you cannot pretend to keep your, your children innocent when, in matters of sexuality by keeping them ignorant about matters of sexuality. Is that making sense so far, church? My generation, the thinking was, we need to protect our children and keep them as children and innocent as long as possible so we will keep them ignorant. And so we will use code words like birds and the bees. Listen, don't do that. That's confusing because then you don't want to eat Honey. Say it like it is, in the context and at the age level. We're going to get some principles today in regards to this, but it is pointless for us to be talking about sexuality without beginning where the Bible begins, at the very root. Greek theology would look at the spirit world as being good and the material, anything material was evil, broken, imperfect, including the body. And because sex is experienced through the body, sex is also evil, sex is This experience with a defective broken part of us. So the material is bad. According to Plato and Aristotle, anything material, anything that that is palpable and visible and knowable is evil and broken. But the Bible has a different picture in Genesis 131. When God finishes creating the physical world, which is the only world that really exists, including humanity, then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was in what condition, church. Very good. And even after sin entered this world, the grace of God was active in human beings' lives to preserve and restore that goodness in his creation. So when God made Adam and Eve, he made them with literal physical bodies, and God said, that body is very good. Man's body is very good. Woman's body is very good. So this flies, I mean, right off the bat, we need to dismantle our whole body Uh, worldview of sexuality because most of us, like myself included, I grew up saturated and affected and infected by what media and entertainment was bombarding me with. And I don't think many of you are that different. And the reason sometimes we differ with what we we label as the church's stance on sexuality, we're not differing with the church's stance. we're, We're actually being conditioned to differ with the word of God. The the greatest Greek philosophers would scoff at Christians that would say the body is good. Call them uncouth, unsophisticated, backward-thinking extremists. You and I have no different choice to make today. Our identity and our definition of things in matters to sex, if we're going to be looking at it from a truthful perspective, perspective which is God claims his word is true you need to get the definition of sex from scripture the reason I showed you that that link at the beginning of the sermon is because I hope that if you are a young adult you will go and listen to that presentation there's a second one that I'm going to post during the week that's part two I hope you will listen to those presentations because I cannot delve into some of those issues because of course the the presence of some of our, our young ones Psalms 139,14, "I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well, David is making this statement post-sin." Even after sin, David could look at the human body and say, "This is wonderful, It's amazing." Uh, Augustine is the one to blame for all of this, really. He's one of the church fathers that is lauded as having developed this enormously elaborate theology and clarified many things. I'm not impressed with him at all because most, much of what the Protestant Reformation has had to undo came through him. Augustine fell in love with Greek theology, Greek philosophy. He saturated his mind with it, which is a warning for ourselves. What are you saturating your mind as you're trying to define what sex is? Because don't, make it, don't, don't kid yourself. You have your own ideas and convictions about what sex is and what it is not. And if it has not been influenced and guided by the scriptures, your view of sex is skewed and most likely way off. And you may teach that to your children by not talking to them about it. It's dirty. It's shameful. But the mere silence of parents in regards to this and the world bombarding them with it with tons of accessible information at their fingertips. But in the home, in the Christian home, we don't talk about that. We don't, we don't touch that subject. That in itself is a teaching in and of itself. Does that make sense, church? Silence speaks. So it is to our benefit to go to the Word of God, shed our misperceptions and misconceptions and misinformation about this subject and begin to let God correct our views. Genesis 1, and 28, we're going to go right into this, and I call this section Sex 101. We tend to just gravitate toward one aspect of sex, and I hope that this morning's presentation will broaden how we talk about sex. Genesis 1, and 28, I believe that this will provide for you workable, practical principles when you feel a need to talk to your children. And the reality is, is, as we'll see in just a little bit, we need to be talking to our children about sex long before we talk to them about sex. You'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, So God created men in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, and you've heard me facetiously facetiously say that when God said to Adam and Eve, multiply, he did not give them a calculator. He was not trying to teach them arithmetic. Right? And when he says be fruitful and multiply, God is using generous language. Sex for him was... I'm giving you a blessing. I'm giving you a gift like we talked about last Sabbath. This gift of sex will empower you and enable you to express all of your love and commitment to this other human being in ways that no other behavior can. That's why sex is only a blessing in the context of marriage. I've asked you this question before, you probably remember the answer, but I'm, so I'm gonna ask you again Is fire good or bad? It depends, right? If your couch is on fire, is that good or bad? If you have a fireplace with fire, is that good or bad? Because it's contained. Isn't it a place where it will be a benefit to everybody? But if your couch is on fire, you're not gonna be going, man, I'm sure glad it's toasty in here. Same thing with sex. And no matter, listen, this is why Paul says that the just shall live by faith, and he says that we walk by faith and not by sight. You will look at the world like I did when I was 13, and unfortunately, if we ever heard a sermon or a little smidgen of sex, it was, don't have any. And I was like, man, it must be bad. And then when I go to HBO and Cinemax and the world, and the locker room in my public high school, and my friends would bring the magazines that they would steal from their parents' closets and pass them around, and it wasn't Sports Illustrated. In the world, the message was, this is the best thing ever. And in church, don't do it. The Bible says that God made humans, and he made them in his image. Listen carefully, because this is the sequence. If you want to know how you're going to talk to your children about sex, here's a sequence. Here's the sequence. God identifies and defines how he has created humanity as males and females, and then he blesses them by saying to them, be fruitful and multiply. In both of these segments, God is talking about sex. But when to- God talks about sex, he first addresses sexuality as a noun before he talks about it as a verb. What does that mean, Pastor? I wasn't that good in English. That's okay, because I took ESL, so I'll help you. <laughs> I wasn't that good either. When God talks about sexuality as a noun, he is defining identity. He is defining what sex is in the form of being before he talks about sex in the form of doing. Sex, listen carefully, sex primarily is not something you do, it's something you are. You need to think about what that means. Sex is not something that we do, it's something that we are. Primarily speaking, that is how God defines it. Before you can experience sex as an action, you must have discovered and understood sex as an identity, your identity. The world bypasses completely this first part, goes straight into the behavior, straight into the action, and so we have shrunk, diminished, dumbed down the biblical view of sexuality which is way more holistic and made it into one aspect of human behavior, one moment of human experience, and try to make that part the entirety of it, when it's not. When I do my seminars and I present this to individuals, <laughs> I, have, I have fun. I like to make it engaging, of course, because primarily it's for young people. And so around this time in the presentation, I tell the entire, and these are in a church setting, I tell them, you and I have been told a lot of things about sex. Let's start from the basics. Let's look at the anatomy. So we're gonna look at the male and female sexual organ. In the next slide, we're gonna, not hero. We're gonna look at the male and female sexual organ. And when I click Parents are ready to pull their children off their pews. They're covering eyes. They're going, oh, we should have gone to Cherry Hill. Oh, man, why are we here? <laughs> but when I click in the next slide, is a big picture of a brain. And then I tell everybody, you can breathe now, Mom and Dad. <gasps> and then I say to them, what, would, what did you think I was going to show you? What were you thinking? Because if you were not thinking about this, you've been told a lie about sex. And we have. It, it surprised me, it shocked me, and it hurt me. When I went back to my home church in Pennsylvania, and some individuals that I consider to be spiritual leaders, and some of them were females. At Potluck, we're so excited that that evening, they would watch the season premiere of this show called Sex and the City. Never seen that show, but I don't don't need to conjecture too much because of the title. And I can tell you, the sexual organ that the world tells you is your sexual organ is a big, fat lie. It's not. Your sexual organ is between your ears. And before you experience sex as a behavior, God invites you on a journey to discover your sexual identity. Sex comes before a noun, before a verb. Of course, there's a lot of identical overlaps between males and females. There's physical overlaps, intellectual, emotional, spiritual. Um, God did not make one inferior to the other. But God made some undeniable and obvious differences. Males and females differ in various degrees in their skeletal system, muscular, hormonal, and neurological makeup. We can identify these differences as something God created. These are not the outcome of sin, but this is something that God created and God designed as core components of our identity, Integral components of our identity. So my sexuality is not simply about this narrow view of society, which is what all the debate and all the discussions and all the, the sensitivity comes from. It's from the behavior completely bypassing the ample view of sex that God gives you that begins with a noun, begins with you recognizing, and learning, and discovering through God what your sexual identity is can't let psychology, because it changes. You can't let even the church, because we are a human institution. You need to come to the one who created the male and the female, and he will reveal to you your identity through your sexuality. I'm gonna say that one more time because it is confusing we have been ingrained that sex is something you do, but the Bible says before you do anything in that realm, you have better have understood and grasped and come to some sort of closure as far as understanding that sex is your identity. Everything you do is sexual because you are a male or you are a female. And the way we do things do differ, no matter what we, how we try to finagle it. I mean, just go to the bathroom and you'll discover that there are some differences. I'm going to tell you right now, I will never be able to give birth. Praise the Lord. It's hard. I was there for both of my wife delivering the kids. But I I really couldn't. Because I was a a massage therapist. We were learning about the skeletal system. One of the professors from Loma Linda was telling us that, you know, forensic scientists, individuals who study crimes, they can discover a skeleton in the desert, with all the skin and all this tissue just completely gone, but they can tell if that's a skeleton of a woman or a male. One of the parts, and there's many others that I'm sure that exist, but one of the key components is the hip bones. the The hip of a woman tends to be broader, and the opening in the center of the pelvic bone is a, is larger. So it's a broader, a more horizontal shape, and at the center is broader. You know why that is like that in the woman's skeletal system? You know what happens that that a woman needs that extra space there? The baby. There's differences in how we, we have identical brains. Women and men can share the same IQ and everything else. But the way women process information is different. And science tells us these differences. Not as one being inferior or superior. But when you come to the Bible, you begin to discover that God gave those differences as part of, and we saw that verse, it's not simply that God created males and females. Listen to this part carefully. It's not just that God made humans with two different genders. Three times, it mentions that you and I as males and females were made in the image of God. With noun, with identity, inevitably comes meaning and purpose. And the meaning and the purpose of you as a male, and the meaning and purpose for you as a female was to reflect the image of God. What that means is that as we would interact with humans, we would interact with humans, we would be the highest revelation of the heart of God and the onlooking universe as they would look at the human race, grow and expand and populate the earth, the way we would relate to the created beings, the animals and the, 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 the plants and everything else, and the way we would relate relationally to each other would be a lesson book for the universe as to the heart of God. That's why God made us. As his children to reveal to the universe even better who God is. And that destiny and that purpose hasn't changed because of sin. That's why God sent Jesus Christ. You know, some of these differences, we need to grapple and come to be comfortable with them. I know of a um, grandma that was changing a diaper of her grandson. And it just so happened that her other grandchildren, the other two granddaughters, were in the house. And of course, the grandson's diaper was borderline overflow. So the grandma said, okay, I'm going to put you in the sofa, grab the wipes, grab the diapers, open the diapers. And just as she opens the diapers, the oldest granddaughter walks into the living room. Grandma, what's that? Right there, right there. What's that? She wasn't pointing at the nose. This grandma had processed that this little bundle of joy right here is a sexual being. Because sex is not something you do, sex is something you are. Sex is not something you do, sex is something you what, church? You are. And here's a little boy, a little baby boy, being a sexual being. Because when the diaper opened, and his cousin is pointing at him, what's that? A cold draft of air came through the living room. Yeah. Did you know that when you, ex- males, well females too, but we humans, when we experience cold, our bladder shrinks by 15%. So whatever that had not come out, came out at the moment in a sprinkler system kind of way. And it was a wonderful, innocent, appropriate lesson that sex is not what you do. Primarily, sex is what you do. Are. You need to repeat that until it makes sense in your heart because the world will saturate you and deceive you and want to narrow down your sexuality to something just you do with one part of your body, when sexuality is something you do with your skeletal system, your muscular system, your neurological system, your mind, your brain, your hormones. Everything you are and everything you do defines you as a sexual being, as a male or a female. Sex as knowing. With this kind of a background we begin to better appreciate the language of the Bible when referring to sex. And when I tell people that the Bible speaks about sex in the first book or the first chapter, they're like, I've never seen the word sex because the Bible uses different language that we should embrace, that we should explore and understand. And in Genesis chapter 4, this is post-sin. Here's another time that the Bible mentions sex. And again, it is in a positive, beautiful way It mentions that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and out of that experience, she conceived. You know, this sex as knowing concept can only be appreciated and experienced when you have shed and resisted the pressure of the world to bombard you with a skewed, misinformed way of sex and begin to embrace the biblical form of sex. Because if you've gone through the journey of discovering sex as a noun, your identity, you as a sexual being, that is not simply sexual during a specific time in my life, during a specific moment, but that everything that I do is an expression of my sexuality, my God given, God created, and God defined sexuality. you are ready to know someone else. Because this experience of sex being defined as knowing takes place because I choose to reveal myself. I express myself. I open myself to be known, which begs the question, how can I express myself when I don't know myself? When I am unclear in regards to my identity, how can I share it? Does the need, when it comes to sex, of discovering my identity before I engage in the behavior? Does that make sense, church, to you? If you don't know who you are as a person, if you don't know your purpose that's been given to you by God, sex is meaningless and it's pointless, and the world wants it to stay that way. The world does not want you to see sex for what the blessing that God pronounces upon that act, upon that expression that these sexual beings can now give to each other. So as we said in the previous sermon last week about the Ten Commandments, there's a reason why adultery is not permitted. There's a reason why you ought not be having sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiancé, even if the wedding is next week. There's a reason for that. If you are chomping at the bit and you think that that's going to be the highlight of your marriage, you're going to be deeply disappointed. Not because sex will disappoint you, but because sex will wear out. Because you're bringing nothing to it, nothing with it. You're not engaging your brain, your true sexual organ. You're just engaging as part of you that really very limited when people get married yep there's a looking forward to the honeymoon no lie yep i guess i'm the only one all right <laughs> some of you wanted to say amen but you're like oh come oh. why see i'm going to i'm going to tell you right now that the world when I went to L.A., to when I landed in L.A. to go to massage school, L.A. is a different place because they had billboards for these places of immorality in which it was almost too, too, too graphic, way too graphic. And those were the billboards that the world has through your TV screens, through your media, through your video games. That's, those are the billboards. You know what, what are God's billboards about Sex. Married people, married people. And so, Satan loves it when married people talk about sex like burnt toast. It was good, but we left it in there too long. It was good, but back then. If you're only thinking about one aspect of your married life as the sexual part, it does change, hormones change, whatever but you are still a sexual being. And because of that mindset, you're no longer narrowing sex to just one aspect of your life. Physical attentions are sexual. You reaching out to hold your wife's hands is sexual. You kissing your wife is sexual. Amen? When was the last time you kissed your wife? You are a billboard. And young people are watching. And young people come to church and watch God's billboards, which hopefully tell them it's true. It's a blessing. It's a joy. I read to you the account of a woman that had an affair. You can watch that sermon. And the affair, of course, afforded her, you know, fireworks in regards to the experience. But those fireworks weren't out. And her parents were celebrating 50 years of marriage, plus 50-plus years. Like last week, we had the celebration of Don and Sandy's 50th wedding anniversary. Those are billboards. The billboards of the world may be flashy with lots of sparkle, but they change. But what young people really want deep down is to see something that is legitimate, that is permanent. Because I'm going to tell you right now, we talked about already that either sex is evil or sex is God, both are false, only God is God. And because God is love, what you're really yearning for deep down is not sex, it's love. And in order to experience love, you need to have discovered yourself as, an, as a person, as an identity. You know, there's a uh, passage in the scriptures, we're not gonna look at all of it, we're just gonna look at the transition because I, I wanna close with this appeal. Whether you're single or married, sin has thoroughly skewed and distorted our perceptions and our abilities to know God. So we are left with seeking for what God has revealed about Himself so that we can come to know Him. And that's a journey. And many people think, well, I guess I have to get to know God so that I can be saved. It's partly true. But listen to, to this part. Please hear these words and just think about them. You barely know yourself. You barely know yourself. There are parts of you you don't want to know about. And God knows that. But this is the the paradox. The world wants to send you on a self-discovery pilgrimage which is destined for self-defeat. The only way you're going to know yourself is when you come to know God, the one who made you. In proportion, listen carefully, in proportion to you coming to know God, you will know yourself. I'm going to say that again. In proportion to you knowing God, you will come to know yourself. And I'm choosing my words carefully because I did not say in proportion to you knowing things about God. There are people that know things about God that don't have a clue who he is. In proportion to you coming to know God, you will know yourself. And when you know yourself, The noun and the verb will come in naturally. And what the world does and doesn't do will be irrelevant to you. Your greatest joy will be to know and understand that your sexuality, which is all of your identity, is designed to reveal to the world God's character. And that will change everything. I want us to go quickly through this interaction of knowing Him and knowing me, knowing God. Um, This is a woman by a well. Uh, Samaritan woman, we don't know her name, but the dialogue is, is transitional. You can see a progression of what I've just told you that in proportion to knowing God, you come to know yourself. She begins by addressing him, um, You're a Jew. Jesus says to this woman, Can you please give me some water? And she's taken back. And the only uh, way of defining Jesus and describing Jesus for her is, You are a Jew. How come you, a Jew, is asking me for a drink of water? And then Jesus responds, if you knew, clearly stating, you don't know. You don't know me. Because if you knew me, you would be asking me for water. And so the woman's interest is piqued, but she's confronted because she's heard things. She's, she's bombarded with wrong theologies about God and wrong theologies, in turn, about herself. So she begins to challenge this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you, are you bigger than... But then, as Jesus begins this revelation of himself, Jesus goes from being a Jew to being sir. Sir, give me this water. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't want to go there. Can we not go there? There are things that have happened to me. I don't want to go there. I have no husband. So Jesus, this Jew that has now become a sir, responds, you're right, you're honest. You have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. And so Jesus now goes up one more notch, and she says it's no longer just referring to him as sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so Jesus pushes closer. You're getting to know me. I'm not a Jew. I'm not just a Jew. I'm not a sir. I'm not someone just of respect. I'm not just a prophet. But you're getting closer. And the more you get to know me, the more you get to know yourself. Father is looking for true worshipers. I know that Messiah is coming, she responds. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. He will tell us all things. That that phrase is very important. Jesus responds, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. If you skip to verse 29, listen to how the woman describes Jesus. Come, see a man who told us, who told us, told me all things that we ever did, I ever did. In proportion to this Samaritan woman with a narrow view of sexuality, broken and used, exploited and exploiting, is confronted by the living Christ. And this Jesus, look at this woman and says, if you knew me, If you only knew me, your life would change so much. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, go figure me out. Jesus begins to talk. Jesus begins to offer water. Jesus begins to offer information. Jesus begins to go to those areas in life that, I didn't know myself. Peter didn't know himself. The disciples didn't know himself. Judas didn't know himself. Their identity was hidden from themselves and here's the only one that could reveal to them their identity, but their receiving this revelation of their identity was contingent upon receiving the revelation of Jesus himself. This woman heard from Jesus, I that I speak to you, I am he. And she receives that information and it changes her. It changes her. It revolutionizes her view of herself as a sexual being and she kicks that loser out of her house. You don't respect me. You don't treat me as a being created in the image of God. You only treat me as a part, not as a whole. You're not interested in all of me. You're interested in just parts of me. But here's someone that loves me completely in spite of my brokenness. He's seeking for me. He loves me. Even though he knows everything about me, he loves me more than anyone ever could. It's Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Jesus. Do you know Jesus? In proportion to you knowing him, you know yourself. John 17:3 says, "And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." You don't know yourself. You don't know yourself. But God wants you to know yourself. He made you. The Bible says that while you were being formed in your mother's womb, God was tenderly watching you being formed. And Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, I know the plans that I have for you to give you peace, a future, and a hope. If you only knew me, your life would be so different. As a pastor, I have to tell you that I am on a journey of discovering who God is. And I can tell you it is a fact that knowing knowing him has changed me as a husband. Jesus has revealed things about me I could have never discovered on my own. And I want to know him more. There's a song that says that, Lord, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. That involves a simple commitment, a simple choice. This is eternal life, that you may know God. This is his revelation. he being given to you through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you come to know me, you will also know the Father. And in proportion to you knowing me, you will know yourself. And that will change everything in your life. Is there anyone this morning that wants to know God more? Is there anyone this morning that wants to respond to the Spirit's prompting? I've been busy learning things about you. I go to seminars and I read stuff, but it's information from a distance. I want to know not just about you, Lord. I want to know you. Can we pray together this morning as a church? My appeal goes especially to parents, husbands, and wives. Can we come together this morning and pray as a church? Recommitting ourselves to resisting the pressures of the rush, the busyness, at the expense of knowing, knowing God. If you would like to join me this morning, here I invite you to come forward. Let's pray together as a church. If you are a young person, and in your journey you want to know God, you want your sexuality to be defined by the one who created it and made it, let's pray together. Jesus' promises that where two or three are gathered in his name, he makes himself manifest. Why remain ignorant? Why remain ignorant of the one that wants to reveal to you who you are, your purpose, his plans for you? The greatest injury any human being has ever made is to reject the opportunities to know Jesus, to know his love, to know him as your creator, to know him as your redeemer. Father, thank you for that children's story about that eraser. In your word, that eraser is the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, In Revelation chapter 1, it has such a tender expression. To him who loved us and washed us in his blood. Wash us, Lord. Wash the lies that we have come to believe about ourselves. Wash the lies that keep us distant from you. Wash our own rebellions and neglect. Forgive, Father, for thinking that a good gift of sex is something to be worshipped, something to lead me to compromise and violate my conscience. It has only brought heartache, disappointment, and shame. So we need forgiveness, Father, forgiveness for the things we have allowed into our lives, into our hearts and minds. And we long and by faith, Lord, ask, erase, remove, wash. But don't leave us blank, Lord. Don't leave us a blank page through your spirit and our commitment, Father, to opening this book, your holy word. We want to know you. We don't just want to know about you. We want to have a conversation similar to what that woman had with you. The beautiful thing is, Father, you initiated that conversation. So, Father, you have initiated and provoked in us desires and longings for something higher, something better, something holy. Your definition and your understanding of who we are as sexual beings. Thank you for the gift. Lord, we don't want to allow the gift to consume us at the expense of forgetting the giver. So Father, anoint my brothers and sisters, those that have come forward and responded and those that though they are in the pews father in their hearts they are yearning for you they are yearning something more than what this world has to offer father let us leave your house of worship with this conviction sealed in our hearts a commitment to keep this conversation going throughout the week you've started it this morning long for us to respond. This woman could say, come see a man that has told me all that I have done, and he has not rejected me, he has received me, he loves me. I pray that that experience, we will have ourselves personally with you. In Jesus' name.